let's, uh, let's turn our attention this morning to, uh, to Scripture. So, all I can do is, uh, at this point, tell you that um, the subject matter for this morning um, is just driven by the convenience of the calendar, as was the message last week. Um, it's, a, it's a convenient time because there's a lot of conversation about this issue going on um, uh, uh, in the world around us. And so I wanted to take uh, uh, just one Sunday to address it. Um, you know, I know, I know of some churches that have a designated Sunday that they address this issue once a year, every year. Uh, I have never done that. Um, but every once in a while, uh, I, I, I will mention it. Today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, devote the Sunday morning to this subject. Um, so just, just a quick reminder before I let you know what the subject is, uh, as a quick reminder of why we're here and where we've been, um, let me just do a really fast review. Uh, because of Paul's very Old Testament language in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, where he refers to himself as a drink offering being poured out, we've taken a detour away from 1 and 2 Timothy into the Old Testament, and, and we're looking at, at why. Because the, the Old Testament presents to us some very foundational concepts, some things about who God is and how he has made the world that we need to know. They are, they are the eternal intentions of God, and, and we need to know uh, the, the, the what's and the why's behind them. Uh, and so we're, we're focused on, on, on uh, some things that the Old Testament has to say because there are certain subjects that are addressed with a richness in the Old Testament that are not necessarily addressed that way in the New Testament. Why? Because... Uh, because those to whom the New Testament was written largely had a foundation from the Old Testament, or at least had access to the Old Testament to receive those foundational ideas that, that were necessary for them to, uh, to understand in life. So, so here's just the quick review. On October 16th, we looked at how to understand the Old Testament, the law, Israel. We just did a quick a quick version of how to understand as New Testament believers what is the role of the Old Testament and the law and, and how are we supposed to view Israel as New Testament believers. On October 23rd, then we, we looked at how to understand the reality of evil. The Old Testament provides us with, with uh, an understanding of where evil comes from um, and, and uh, some basic precepts and how to understand the category of evil versus good. And then last week, I, uh, I addressed this issue because it's such a contemporary issue, what it is that the Old Testament has to say to us about the issue of gender. How do we understand gender? Obviously, this is, this is being thrust into, into our awareness by a media that keeps this issue in front of people all the time. It's part of the political discourse of our country that is going on right now because of election cycle coming up. And, and, uh, and the message that I want to share this morning is the same. It's, it's, it's part of the national conversation, and it's very much in the forefront of our conversation because we happen to be coming up on an election in a couple of days. 
So this is not intended to be a politically motivated message. It's simply intended to be a, a why do we as Christians believe what we believe and this is a convenient time to address it because it's around us. It's, it's around us everywhere right now. This discussion is being had around us everywhere right now. So I intend for this to be the final message in this brief little Old Testament excursion. By the way, one of the things I'm praying through, uh, I've actually done it the last couple of years. I, I have toyed with and, and actually been, been uh, drawn to, have wanted to spend a significant amount of time doing nothing but going through Old Testament stories and, and asking what are the, the riches of truth that we can glean from the, from the interactions between God and man as they're presented to us in the Old Testament. I haven't made any firm determinations yet, but it's like for the last couple of years, I've thought, I'm probably going to do that this year. And then it hasn't happened. And oh, I'll probably do that this year. And it hasn't happened. And maybe next year will be the year. Um, so this is not something that we're going to walk away from entirely. At some point, this will come back around, I, I would expect. Um, but, but next week, we are going to return to 2 Timothy and finish out, uh, finish out this series on 1 and 2 Timothy by the end of November before we move into the, uh, to the Christmas season. So last week's ma uh, subject, uh, last week's message was very sensitive subject matter. And, and, um, and this week's is going to be as well. This week's is going to be as well. Uh, and, so, and so I pray that, that um, I prayed earlier that, that whether it's in the way that I speak in the way that we hear, that, that the powers of evil would be kept from misconstructions and, and, and um, uh, wrong motivations and all of that sort of thing, that, that, that we would be able to discuss this subject matter and and uh, hopefully deal with it in a way that is profitable for all of us. In many ways, while the content is going to be different, the spirit of this message is going to be the same. In fact, I feel like it's quite repetitious. But I believe that it is, it is something that we must have constantly before us, in part because it feels increasingly like this world just wants people to be mad all the time. Does it feel like that to you? Like the messaging is like just constantly stirring up trouble? <laughs> constantly, right? Constantly, you should be worried about this. You should be angry about this. You should be upset about this. Um, uh, they this or they that and we this. And it's this, just a rhetoric that is, that is largely combative so much of the time. Um, I, I pray that we will be able to understand this, the reasoning for it from a biblical perspective, uh, and, then also, and then also kind of a New Testament prescription, how we should understand this, what our role is in this as we go forward. So here's the context. Here we, here we go. A recent history. On January 22nd, 1973, abortion rights were made the law of the land. Um, uh, so 
that means it's been um, just under 50 years. Whoops. Sorry, that was me. On June 24th of this year, the Supreme Court announced that it had decided that that landmark case of Roe versus Wade was no longer going to be the law of the land. Um, there was, I, I mean, it's, it, when you look back on it, it's just a fascinating time to be alive. Uh, fascinating, not necessarily fun, but fascinating time to be alive. Um, because surrounding this case, uh, we all know that there were things that happened that are very unprecedented in the history of the country, right? That, um, I don't know why, there we go. That on, in, in February of 2022, February, the, the decision of the Supreme Court was not released until June 24th, but February was when the decision was made, right? The Supreme Court came to this conclusion in February of 2022. So it's four months, plus or minus, uh, four months later that the, that the decision is released to the public. But there is, uh, there is this thing that happens at the end of May. It's not, there we go. May of 2022, a, a copy of the uh, majority's opinion is leaked to the media. I could be just, I, I could be out of it. I may not know. Um, I, I confess that I'm not a, an avid news uh, junkie. I don't, I don't keep up with the news uh, uh, a lot. So maybe, maybe there has been something that has already happened in this way, but um, you know, this, this matter of a Supreme Court decision being leaked was, was disturbing to many people on a, on a lot of levels, right? It's like, wow, it doesn't feel like anything is sacred. This is supposed to be privileged information, confidential information until, right? And, and this information gets leaked and, and now all of a sudden, everybody knows a month, month and a half before the decision is announced what's coming. And, and, and the, the, the pot starts to boil again, right? It starts before the announcement is even made. This subject comes back into the national discourse. Not that it was ever completely gone, but it comes back with a, with a kind of vengeance, right? It starts boiling over. How many of you have found it fascinating to, to, to hear the difference between the way this subject is talked about now versus the way it was talked about even 10 years ago? Even 10 years ago. The, the, the talking points and the, the way that this, that this issue is discussed has changed, has changed in some pretty dramatic ways. Um, and, 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 and so back into the national conversation, this issue comes. Now, uh, you, you cannot, it, I don't think you can, if you have an address, you're getting political mail sent to you. 
If you have a cell phone, somebody has gotten your number somewhere and you're getting phone calls or you're getting texts, you're getting something, right? It's, it, it's become unavoidable, it seems, that, that we are getting, we are going to get information. Uh, this, we're going to get information about the politics of our day. And, and no one is shy about making this issue of abortion a central issue in this election. Everybody's talking about it on both sides. Well, we take this position, we take this position. Um, one of the things that I have realized from growing up in the church is that very often I, I discovered that I had grown up being told what was right and what was wrong but I had never had anyone take the time to say, here's where this comes from in Scripture. Here's why we believe this is right. Here's why we believe this is wrong. Um, uh, no one had given me that, that background for it. It was just, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. right? And, uh, and I, I think it becomes really important for us to sometimes take a step back Make sure that our children and youth are not being raised in an environment of because I told you so. Make sure they have an opportunity to say, well, this is what Scripture says. What do I do with this? How do I approach what Scripture has said? How do I allow Scripture to speak to me? And then, once Scripture has spoken to me, how do I set this in the context on this subject matter? How do I set this in the context of all of Scripture? What's the right way for me as a Christian to respond to this issue, right? So, um, so just real quickly, the, the results of all that we've just looked, about, looked at are that abortion has returned with a vengeance to the national conversation, one. And secondly, uh, the legality of abortion uh, uh, the legality of it was given back to the autonomy of each, the authority of each state. We're, we're living in a time and a place, I just don't know what it is to look like, as states make their decisions, make their individual laws, how the citizens of each individual state will respond to whatever it is that their state legislators decide. Um, maybe we'll have uh, a reshuffling of the American population as people move from one place to another. I, I don't know what it ends up looking like in the end. I just know that we're back in a time and place where, where um, since this ha is no longer federally mandated, we're going to have these conversations going on uh, 50 times, <laughs> okay? Each and every state is going to have to make some decisions. Not every state has already got its own, its own laws in place, but... but there will be reviews of all these things. And these are going to be, this is going to be an issue for the foreseeable future. So uh, I, I want to share with you this morning um, uh, why it is that as Christians, we view life the way we do. And I'm going to say, I, I, I'm just going to say up front that there will probably be if you view this message through the lens of politics, which I beg you not to, that's not, its, that's not its intention this morning, but if you do, there will be problems no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Because scripture has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of convicting us of the things that are in our own hearts. And, and, and no one 
is as pure as the wind-driven snow. We all have particular issues that need to be, that need to be dealt with. So I think it would be fair to say that at least in evangelical Christianity, the majority, the majority opinion, the majority uh, uh, approach to this subject is that, um, uh, is that the, the Bible teaches us against abortion, that it teaches us that, that we should be protectors of and promoters of life. Right? So I want to just run through a biblical case, specifically an Old Testament case, to help us understand why we view abortion with the seriousness with which we view it. Okay, So the Old Testament case on this subject. So um, I, 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 just, I need to say this right up front. Um, uh, there was probably a time in my life when this kind of message was very exciting to me. It's not anymore. I find no excitement in this. Um, in fact, I would really rather just not. Um, um, but I think it's vital for us to endeavor to the best of our ability, from time to time anyways, to say, how do we as Christians think about the issues of our day? And to address them, to have an, enough courage to address them head on. Okay, but, but maybe to do so in a way that that, um, well, hopefully we do so in a way that represents the Lord Jesus well. Um, so the Old Testament case. Let me, let me start with the Old Testament case for life. And this is, this is, this is like a, an obnoxiously uh, abbreviated version of the Old Testament case for life. But it's just, you know, it's Two, two main ideas that I want to share with you that the Old Testament reveals to us about how we should understand life. The first one is based on the passage that we read uh, last week from Genesis chapter 1. This, this is a major part of the way Christians have understood this issue. So Genesis 1 verse 26, uh, I'll read through the first part of verse 28. Uh, then God said, let us... Make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, there's two things um, please don't forget that Genesis being the book of beginnings, Genesis, uh, Genesis lays profound foundations for how we should understand the world as God originally made it. It provides us with basic understandings of things like human society and, and the structures of the family and, and these, these truths that God has established since the very beginning of time. There's at least two issues that we see here in, in, uh, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. At least two issues come straight to the forefront. The first one is the fact that humans are made in God's image. That humans are made in God's image. 
Now, that has profound implications. In other words, when I look at another human being, I must learn to spot the image of God in that person. I have to understand that that's not an economic issue. It's not a skin color issue. It's not a health issue. It's that person across from me is made in the image of God. And and that informs the way I view people. That should drive the way I view people. This person is made in the image of God. And and Christian thinkers down through the centuries have, have, have talked about this at great length, letting us know things like the way that we should view the nobility of human beings, the way it implies that we should treat other human beings because they are created in the image of God. They have dignity. They have worth. They have value. They should be honored. They should be respected. They should be treated well, right? Because they are made in the image of God. Now, you can just keep going through scripture. There's there's plenty of other things that we're not going to look at. We celebrated communion. One of the truths about human beings is that God valued us so much that he sent his son to die for us. That places an enormous price tag on every human life, right? That we were bought with a price, that this is the value of a human being in the sight of God. Well, it starts with this, that we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. We are image bearers. So one of the phrases that has that has been coined from this concept is this. It is that there is a sacredness to human life. That human life is sacred. Why is it sacred? Because it is in God's image. It's unlike any other thing. It's unlike any other form of life. It's distinct from. We human beings are made in the image of God And because we are made in the image of God, there's a sacredness to human life. There's a sacredness. Uh, Lord, forgive me for the numbers of times when, when with my words, I have not honored the sacredness of the person across from me. When I have spoken in ways that, that belittled or that demeaned or that insulted or that, that in any way would have caused that person to sense anything less than being honored as individuals made in the image of God. I mean, these are essential concepts that if we grasped them and applied them, would transform the way we understand how we should speak to other people, okay? how we should treat human beings. They're very powerful concepts. Human life is sacred. Human life is sacred. So if I, if I stopped for a second and looked, uh, looked in this room, look across the road at my neighbor, look uh, next to me at the car stopped at the red light, I should, see, I should see in some sense a holiness there, a sacredness there. That individual is made in the image of God. They're an image bearer. Something about them portrays the fact that they are the creation of God. They're the creation of God. Okay, so that's one, made in God's image. The second thing from this passage that has been drawn out of it is that 
Life is God's business. That life is God's business. In other words, he's the author of it. He's the author of it. That life is his domain. It's his domain. It belongs to him. That, that ought to change the way I understand what my role would be in either the giving or the taking of a life. That this is a serious matter. That the amazing thing about it is that you and I as human beings have, have a role to play in the creation of life but that it is not really my, my domain, my prerogative. This is really the, the territory that belongs to God. How many of you have seen recently, maybe you saw it in the news, maybe you saw it, I, I think there's YouTube videos of this. This, this. The moment of conception is marked by a spark of light. How many of you have seen that? It's remarkable, right? It's remarkable. As Christians, when we think through the significance of light, and you think of it as, as connected with life, you think of these things, why it is that these things are, are intimately connected, and you realize that, that while I as a human being have a, have a role to play in the creation of a life, that it is really, listen, the, 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 it's fascinating to me because humans have long used this term before we had the science to prove it. That, that when I look at a human being, I see the divine spark. The divine spark. Right? The idea would be something like this. The other night at the ferries, we're sitting around a bonfire. And, and uh, at one point, Mark threw a, a particular log on the fire. And that thing started spitting sparks everywhere. They were coming at me. They were coming at the Emmerichs especially were getting hammered by them. And he was like, whoa. The point was this. You don't want a spark to land on you and not know it, lest it start another fire. Right? The divine spark means this. God is the source of life. And every human being is a spark offshoot of the fire that is God of the life source that is God, the spark of life. It's, it's, it's a powerful idea to understand that life is truly God's business. It's God's business. That is, it belongs to him. It's sacred because it's God's gift, because it's God's creation. Now, please hear this. I'm going to, for a few minutes, tread where angels fear to tread, okay? Um, in my younger years, I just loved a good debate and I loved a good fight. So I'd have been like excited for this part of the message. Man, I wonder who I'm going to get to fight out with this one. I, I have no, I'm like, I just don't. I just don't. So part of me asks, why are you going to do this? Well, because I think it's important for Christians to think through issues like Christians. When we understand that God is the source of life, please hear this. We do not have the privilege to take that idea, that truth that is given to us in Scripture, and apply it selectively the way is convenient for me. 
I don't get to do that. This truth, the, the, the university that I graduated from, the college back then, the, it's now a university, that I graduated from, its motto was, all truth is God's truth. If it's truth, it belongs to God. It's not mine. And that means I don't get to do with it whatever I want. So here's what it means. If I really believe that, that life belongs to God, then that concept should inform the way I understand abortion. Is it my job to take a life? Now, I realize at this point there could be any number of conversations. When does a life become a life? And everybody can go down that road and have this conversation, have this, have this discussion. Um, but for now, to avoid getting in the weeds and not making this a science matter, let me just say this. The point here is that where there is life, we as Christians understand that that life came from God and belongs to him. That he's the Lord of it, not me. Not me. Therefore, it's not my job to touch it or to take it. It's not my job. He gave the life. It's not my job to take it. This is key to the, Christian, to the way Christians have understood why it is we cannot support abortion. Now, let me just say this. I will, uh, some of you will be tempted to leave here calling me a bleeding heart liberal. That's fine. You can do that. Um, but I think any human being ought to say there are cases in which the circumstances make it really, really, really hard to say definitive things. So if, if, a young woman came to me and said, the doctors told me that I have an ectopic pregnancy and if I don't terminate this pregnancy, I'm going to die. Or at least there's a likelihood that I'm going to die, right? To say, you know, dear God in heaven, what is my responsibility in terms of, of upholding a life and a life? a life or a life, a this. Or, now, I'm, I'm, I'm picking one example, and there's probably people that are way more informed than I am, have way more ability to discuss this issue than I do. Here's, I'm simply saying this. When you hear this issue presented in the media, it's, it's going to be centered around issues that are not only deliberately designed to evoke a certain response, but they just do. So part of the conversation was months ago, a young girl, I think she was like 10 years old, 12 years old. It's exceedingly rare, but, but violated and became pregnant. And you look at a 12-year-old, at a you say, you know, this is really hard to say, no, you must, you must. Or at least just to do this, to say, and whose job is it to say you must or you must not? Is that the church's job? Is that a parent's job? Is that the government's job? 
they're, they're not a believer. What, what, what role does the church play in their lives? Any, you get the idea. That sometimes, given a certain set of circumstances, the issues surrounding this are just not easy. And I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you, I'm, the way I'm going to say it is this. I believe it is absolutely vital for us to learn and to practice compassionate ways of having these conversations. We have to be able to let people know that that person sitting across from us, when we talk about this issue, that there are people that are living real life for whom this might be, this might be the big decision of their lives. This might be the heartbreak, the most heartbreaking decision they have. Having acknowledged that, I'm going to come back over here for a second and say this. We used to talk about the fact that we used to, I, I'll say, a certain segment of our country used to talk about abortion and say things like, it should be safe and rare. That was the term that was used, safe and rare. Increasingly, however, I'm hearing abortion celebrated as if it were a good thing. As if it were something that was not a, an unfortunate but necessary thing in some instances. But hey, this was such a good thing for my life, it ought to be available to everybody. And I would just say to, to that perspective, you are really degrading the value of a life. It's a degradation of the value of life. That the biblical understanding is that this life is precious. Is precious. It's not something to cavalierly for my own well-being say, hey, it was a good thing for me to get rid of it. These are, these are both sides need to relearn how to discuss this thing with the seriousness that it deserves, with the weightiness that it deserves. By the way, this idea of life being sacred and being God's gift applies to all sorts of issues. Did you know that in the early 1900s, when birth control was becoming very available and very effective, that the church was going through a very difficult self-evaluation? What do we do with this technology? The church was agonizing over this. Large segments of the church were agonizing over how do we understand the role of this technology that we have, sorry. How do we understand the role that, that, we, that this technology, what do we do with this? And, and Christian leaders were saying, like, the sinfulness of man, the fallenness of man means that people are going to use this in a selfish Avoid the God-given responsibility associated with the pleasure of, of producing a child and it's going to turn sexuality into something that's not really healthy. And they had legitimate concerns. They had legitimate concerns. Right? Let me just say it this way. This is not a legalistic statement. But this is simply to say this. How easy has it been for us as believers 
to not bring God into the conversation when we start talking husband and wife about the issue of having children. I'll tell you that he had no role in that conversation when I started my marriage. It had never crossed my mind that he would have thoughts about this subject. It was, how many children do you want? My wife, I want two or I want four. How many do you want? I want two or I want three. Well, the number we have in common is two. Then I had to ask, right? Why two or four? Well, because in my house growing up, there were three of us, and it was always two against one. And I don't want it to be two. I said, well, it could be three against one. Right? I remember having this conversation. You know, four doesn't guarantee two v two. V2. <laughs> you know? I mean, it might be that something, but two could, four could be one v three, and that would just be more unpleasant for the one, right? So I don't know what to do. How about two, right? So th this was the conversation. At, at, that, at that beginning place, it never crossed my mind to say, God, what do you want for me? I just want you to know that that's all I'm advocating for today. Life is God's business. Bring him into it. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are his. There's nothing in, the, in your existence that is divorced from your relationship with God. Bring it all before him. Lord, what is your will for me? I endeavor to obey you in all of this. By the way, what do we say about capital punishment? What do we say about capital punishment? What is our understanding of capital punishment? That's the taking of a life. Right? We ought to be able to have some form of discussion about what it means for a human being to be in the position to, to take a life, whatever they're guilty of, or how guilty do they have to be before the life is taken. Right? That this is a Why? Because life belongs to God. It's his domain. Right? And so any role I have in it needs to be taken seriously. It has to be put before him and seriously said, God, what do you say? How, do you, how would you have me to approach this issue? This has been, this has been um, I, I, I can't say it any other way, other than deeply concerning to me. Um, I, I went to a college uh, uh, university. Now, I know it's just college students. I, I don't mean to insult a college student. I, I, but I, I, I do recognize that you think about things differently when you're 50 than you do when you were 20. But I remember just thinking how cool it was that this guy down the hall from me had this sign on his door that said, that said these premises protected by Smith & Wesson three nights a week, you get it. I mean, I read that, I was like, man, that's like a cool dare, right? Maybe you'll get a night, maybe you won't, right? But the more I thought about it, I thought to myself, this is no game. This is no dare. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about taking a life. I drive around. I don't know if the people are, are Christians or not, but some of the bumper stickers I see, some of the things I see on people's windows, it's, like, it's almost like they celebrate the day when they might have a chance to look somebody in the, in the eyes and say, you know, make my day, punk. And I just think to myself, 
There's just no way on God's earth that a Christian could ever celebrate that moment. That's a life in the image of God. This is like the last thing I would ever want to have to be face to face with, that decision. There's nothing about that that is good. There's no upside. You're sending somebody to eternity who, if they're doing something that deserves being sent to eternity, is not ready for their eternity. It's an awful thing to know that you have that power in that moment. It's a very serious matter. I'm not against gun ownership, but I am, I'll tell you something that just flat out openly I'm against. I I just, I don't have room to, to hear cavalier comments about taking a life. Think like a Christian about this issue. That's a life for whom Jesus died. I'm not allowed to say life is sacred when I'm talking about abortion and then pretend like that's not true when it's a criminal across from me. Life is sacred. Innocent life is sacred. Guilty life is sacred. There may be times when there's a difference in what I do, but the point is I have to take the moment of of a life being taken from this earth as if it were holy ground. It's holy ground. Because in that moment, the sacred is being touched. The sacred is being touched. Serious business. I don't, uh, I, I'm going to need to move quickly and wrap this up, but I, I want to say this to you this, this way. Um, I'm not meaning to be overly dramatic to get like some kind of reaction out of you. But if you've ever been in the room when a family is agonizing over whether or not to keep a loved one on life support, what you're dealing with is the fact that there's a sacredness of life and the decision you're about to make is going to have a consequence. There was a family that invited me to have the privilege of standing with them in that moment. And the, the, the thing about it that was so amazing is that every part of this person's body was only functioning and staying alive because of the mechanics of, the, of modern medicine. But despite that fact, the person would slip in and out of consciousness. And when they were conscious, they were completely lucid. They knew who you were. They could carry on a conversation. And they were completely artificially being kept alive. It was completely artificial. Do you know what it's like to have to make a decision when someone has... When, when, you don't, when you know, if I wait another half an hour, the person will come back around again and be able to have one more conversation with me. But the only reason they'll get there is because machines are keeping them functioning. They can't eat. They can't breathe. Their heart's ready to give out. Everything is being done mechanically. And to stand there and to say, This person doesn't want to do this anymore, and we have to let him go. So we're going to hold hands, and we're going to sing hymns, and we're going to commend their spirit to God, and we're going to turn the machines off.
And we're going to tell them we love you. And they're going to go. And there's not a thing about it that's, that's easy. Imagine they don't know the Lord and they're not ready. They're saying, I don't want to live anymore. But you're not ready to go. My brothers and sisters, life is sacred. And sometimes, sometimes when certain subjects come up, our attitudes betray the fact that we selectively apply the reality of the sacredness of life and we don't treat it that way, the same way depending on what the subject matter is. I'm calling us back to understanding life from a truly Christian perspective and saying, it's all sacred. Whatever my position is, I have to view it through this lens. Life is sacred. If I'm going to take it, boy, I better have a good reason for it. I must consider the interests of God when life is involved. I hope that makes some sense. I took so long on that, I'll run. The second reason from the second part of the case from the Old Testament is Psalm 139. It's just God's knowledge of our days and his involvement in our formation. I saw you when you were in your mother's womb. All of your days were numbered. I knew it all. Christians have looked at this and said, we believe that life begins before birth. In that womb, that individual was known to God. Was known to God. I did not know this until years later, but my great-grandmother, my, my great-grandmother, um, considered her a different age, herself a different age than everybody else attributed to her because her cultural understanding of her age was she should add nine months to the date of her birth. If you asked her, she was 100 years old and three months to the day when she died. To the rest of us, she was 99 and a half exactly. The strength of that is, wait a second, my life, when did it start? When did it begin? It's a profound question, right? God sees that child in the womb. We have, as Christians, historically viewed that as, as intending to communicate to us that God validates that life in the womb. I know you, and I, and I have plans for you. I'm involved in forming you, and I know your days. I know your days. All right. Real fast, that's the case for life. There's a case against death. Again, I'm only going to make one point here. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12, one of the sins that is listed for which God pushed the people of the land out of the land and gave it to Israel was because they would cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. It was child sacrifice, idolatrous child sacrifice. Um, so one of the ways the church has looked at this and said, has said, you know, 
we don't have to serve physical idols, but um, materialism is a form of idolatry. It's a love of, an inordinate love of possessions. It's a worshiping of things. And if we make life and death decisions for economic reasons, we are in, in a very real sense doing a, a spirit of the law violation <laughs> of what we see in the Old Testament. Well, for the sake of money, I will do this. Or for the sake of pleasure, I will do this. It's an indication of what we worship. In other words, I don't know. I, I think that reasonable people would be able to say that the conversation around an issue like abortion would be very different if it wasn't being used as a convenience. We'd still have disagreements but at least we would say, as a culture, we understand that it should not be a convenience. It shouldn't be an economic thing. It shouldn't be a pleasure thing. In other words, in a, in a society where we, where we know what to do surrounding birth, to say that anybody, well, you know, my prescription is to have an, we should be saying something like, wait a second, how do we approach this issue, right? It should not be a convenience. It would change the conversation, right? We'd still have disagreements. It would change the conversation. The idea here is simply that, that we see in the Old Testament this, this idea that God is, is not in favor of the death of the little ones and that, he, and that he will push people out and that it should not be a form of idolatrous worship. It should not be, I do it for economic reasons because I, because I value my money more than I value this life, or my convenience, or my pleasure, okay? Now, I need to, I need to close with this. Um, I, I put up there abortion as modern-day idolatry. That's one of the ways the church has viewed this and contextualized this conversation. I have to, I have to just add this. I think it's extraordinarily significant um, that, that maybe, uh, I mean, the, the, two, the two main men of the Old Testament are really... Abraham and Moses. I mean, uh, you probably have to put David in that category as well. Maybe the three main men, right? There's plenty of others that are significant. But Abraham and Moses, David, are, are, are pretty significant, you know? Um, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm saying this for this reason only. However we view abortion, we have to remember that the person across from us, that, that if there's a person across from us that, has, that, that abortion has been a part of their past, we have to remember how we as Christians ought to view something that we view as sin. So I just want to point out that in the case of Moses, a man who in a moment when he saw an Egyptian abusing an Israelite, had a passion rise up in him that caused him to kill an Egyptian. Let me just say this. If you were ever tempted to say, well, well, he was an official in Pharaoh's court. Maybe he had the authority to do that. I'll just tell you he didn't, and he proved it because he ran. <laughs> he knew full well he was in trouble for what he did. He had no business killing that Egyptian, and he knew it. And he ran. And he ran, right? It was not his job to do that. He, he was a murderer. He took a life. And for the next 40 years, he sits on the sidelines 
in the, in the wilderness, and God forms him. But please hear this. I think, I think probably the accurate way to say it is that when, uh, when, we, read, um, when we read in Scripture that, that, that Moses was the meekest man or the most humble man on the earth, that there was a good reason why he was. That it was something like, yes, God, I had a sense that I was supposed to be the one who was going to deliver your people from slavery, and boy, God, did I blow it. I murdered a man. Now I don't trust myself at all anymore. So now God appears to him and says, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Send anybody but me. The man who was so ready to say, I'll kill you, is now ready, I don't even want to talk. I don't even want to talk. I can't speak. Don't send me. I'm not, I'm not qualified for that job. It had transformed this man. But please notice this, that the underlying truth of the story was is that there was a grace for this man. He was the human giver of the law, the most humble man on the earth, that there was a grace that was given to this man that meant this, despite his sin, God did not view him as useless. He was not disqualified. And please hear this. This is where I feel tempted like I want to stand up. My brothers and sisters... Please hear this. If there's a person in this world that abortion has been a part of their lives and they come to the place where they regret that course of action, they should view the church as the place where they would want to run. They should, be, they should have the perspective that would say something like this. If there's anybody that can help me and will understand and will carry me through this, they will be found in the church. And that is where our discourse must be transformed. I'm not saying that it's all the church's fault. The church in many ways has been demonized and, 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 and I think that people would be surprised to find out how much grace they would find in the church. I really do. But I will tell you this. In the day and age in which we're living, we as God's people, exercise extra care to let the world know that man if there's a need you have all you have to do is come we'll welcome you we're here for you why for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God for there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains We've all received, and we just want to give it to you. We want to share it with you. Right? That's the role of the church. And there buried in the Old Testament is this story of a man who, who guilty of murder, is, is taken through a process of 40-year rehabilitation, and he's, and he's humbled before God, and he becomes a man who is powerfully used by God the rest of his life. All right, I got to close. I mean, that, that just kind of summarizes everything I was going to say next, but so let me, just, let me just go like this. My brothers and sisters, you get to some New Testament direction on how we should respond to this issue. The titles, the names that are given to Jesus, his, his images, that he is a shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, that he goes and seeks for the wandering one. Why? Because 
He pursues the one who is lost. He pursues the one who is lost. He seeks after the one who is lost. That he is a great physician. Why did he eat with publicans and sinners? He was asked that question specifically. Why? Because they need a doctor. Because they need a doctor. They need someone to heal them. He was concerned. You know why? Because Jesus, listen, the way to say it was this. This name, when he refers to him as the physician, it means that when he looked at them, he was less offended by their sin than he was grieved by their sin. It was like, listen, if we understand properly what sin is, we know that it is wrong, but we should also know that it is hurting the person who's living in it. And so Jesus looked at it and said, I want to heal them. Well, these are not our enemies. These are the people for whom Christ died. We should want to see them whole. We should want to see them whole. Jesus, Acts chapter 10, is described as the judge of the living and the dead. So let me just say it this way. The church can, should, identify sin. But it's Jesus' job to judge the sinner. It's his job to judge the sinner. Our job is to do the work of the ministry that Jesus was doing while he was on earth. We are here to be shepherds and physicians and people who are drawing others to the Savior where they can find grace to forgive and to heal. This is the church's job. So I close with this. The church's job is to be the church. I haven't brought up that phrase for about a month, month and a half, whatever it's been. But this is what we're focused on this year, being the church. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are supposed to be Christ's ambassadors and we are ministers of reconciliation. Please remember that when we're talking about this issue of abortion, we're talking about an issue that brings guilt and shame and consequences and hurtful things into people's lives and that we are here, yes, we acknowledge that there are actions that are sinful, but we are here to be reconcilers. That does not mean that we justify sin. It means that our goal is to be part of the recovery process. We want to walk with people into a place of wholeness before God. And and I'll say it again. People should know that the safest place to go with their sin is the church. Because of all people, they should understand it. They can sympathize with me in it because they know that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So if anybody can help me sort through it, It's them. They're in it with me. They'll help me walk through it. This is the call of what it is to be the church. Yes, we acknowledge what sin is. Yes, we know what sin is. But we shepherd and we heal people who are lost and sick because we have all been such people ourselves. So the question is, would people want me to be involved in their confession and in their restoration? Would I be the kind of person that someone would want to and say, man, if I need to unburden my soul and confess what's on my conscience and and seek some help in, in being reconciled, is that the person that I would trust?
to walk with me there. That should be the church. That should be us. Should be us. Enough clarity to know what's up and what's down, what's sin and what's not. But enough grace and compassion to be able to walk people through it so that they can find Jesus in the midst of it and heal. I have to close by saying this. Years ago, there was someone that was a part of our fellowship that shared openly that abortion had been something that was a part of their past. God bless them. They, were, they, they had the humility and the grace to, to say openly that was a part of their past. I want you to know that when I prepared this message, I thought to myself, the number of people, any sin that I could ever talk about, the number of people that would say openly that that's been a part of their lives, I don't know, it feels like it's relatively small. It's, it's not something that we go around talking about all the time. My suspicion is that, that all of us have things in our past of which we are ashamed, of which, that, uh, of which we really don't want to bring up again. I'd rather just leave it there. I'd rather not deal with it over again, right? I don't, I don't want to talk about it. But I want you to know that when I prepare a message like this, one of the thoughts that's in the back of my head is, what in the world's going to happen if someone's hearing this message last week? What in the world is going to happen if there's somebody that's struggling with how they feel as a man or as a woman with their gender and they listen to this message? And I just say, dear God in heaven, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it well enough to be, to be helpful. But I will say this. Our prayer should be, Lord, help us to create an environment That's not compassion. We don't have to justify the sin. That's not compassion. But boy, do we know how to talk about the sin. Boy, do we know how to see the person and love the person and see the image of God in them and invite them in, draw them in, that our Christianity should be winsome, should be winsome. I hope you understand that given the subject matter last week and this week, it was not going to be short. But I hope that this puts some, some just that, that repetition reminder. In a world full of loud voices that are usually angry, what is the role of the church? The role of the church is to be clear, know what sin is. We don't have to compromise it to show how nice we are, but we had better know how to walk with people, and to remember they're not enemies. They're wounded. They're broken. And they're going to need someone that loves them and is willing to walk with them in life. May God help us to be that, that person. May God help us to be those people. All right. Can we just take a second to pray? Lord, in the, in the uh, intensity of an election cycle with lots of voices and issues being thrust before us. I pray that you would help us to 